So we've looked at narrative, distinct literary form. We've looked at poetry. We've looked at a subset, wisdom literature. Both of these, Hebrew poetry, Hebrew wisdom literature. We've looked at a unique genre, prophetic material, unique to scripture. We've looked at typology, which is even more unique to scripture, a subset of prophecy. We looked at epistles, more common in the New Testament. I didn't mention, but there are epistles in the Old Testament, or at least references to letters, at least. And now we've completed looking at parables, which are a unique literary genre. These are somewhat in the order of priority, so parables are not obviously as important as epistles or not as important as narrative or poetic literature. Now, this is not a genre, so to speak, but it's an area of study that we put under the classification of special hermeneutics. We call that how the New Testament uses the Old Testament or New Testament use of the Old Testament. And in that, there are a lot of issues that are raised and some problems that come up in trying to interpret New Testament quotations particularly, but more broadly, how the, the New Testament uses the Old Testament. So let's spend some time looking at the New Testament use of the Old Testament. This is one of the most difficult areas of hermeneutics. And I'm just going to give you a brief introduction to it. This You can take course in what's called advanced hermeneutics where more detail is given to this whole area, but I'll just give you a brief introduction just to kind of make you aware of some of the problems that we have when we deal with the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Some of the issues that are raised because of the way the New Testament quotes or uses the Old Testament. Number one, do the writers of the New Testament Use undue freedom. In other words, are they going beyond what they should hermeneutically? And in some cases, we would almost have to say, under ordinary circumstances, apart from inspiration, they probably go to undue freedom that you and I do not have in terms of interpreting. But under the inspiration, the answer that we'd answer to this question is no. New Testament writers under inspiration have freedom to interpret and reinterpret as the Holy Spirit reveals to them. The reason we say this is sometimes the writer will say, so such and such is fulfilled by such and such prophet, and you go to that passage and you have no, no clue as to how this could be a fulfillment. You know, we'll talk a little bit about that in more detail. It doesn't seem to be a fulfillment at all. So, is there undue freedom? And I'm saying that there's not because of inspiration. And uh, scholars have come up with some reasons and some answers. Another issue, because of this difficulty that I just mentioned, is inspiration affected? The obvious answer to that is, again, no. Because God has chosen to reveal through different authors, and it just so happens that the New Testament authors come later, and what's revealed to them sometimes adds, or sometimes even somewhat gives a different slant to revelation that you might have in the Old Testament.
So inspiration is not affected. Some scholars, liberal scholars, would see contradictions between what the New Testament writer is saying with what the passage that he's referring to says. And they would camp on these differences. And if, in fact, they're in error or contradictions, then, then in fact, inspiration would be affected. But because we have a high view of inspiration in Scripture, we can find resolution to some of these issues and problems. We see harmonization. Do the New Testament writers sometimes give a meaning that is not in the Old Testament from the passages they quote? The answer to that one is it's possible. There's a possibility that through, again, through inspiration, we have meaning that goes beyond what the Old Testament author understood or even intended. But that's a liberty that only writers of inspired literature have. We don't have the same liberty. We're limited in our hermeneutics. Another issue, fourthly, do they exercise great freedom? The answer is absolutely. New Testament writers exercised great freedom under inspiration. And also, in their quotations... Sometimes you read what they quote, and it's not the same wording. It's not the same words. Sometimes they change the tenses. Not necessarily. It has more to do with this exercise of freedom to be able to modify and add as the Holy Spirit leads them. Yeah, in fact, under this... There's quite a variety of grammatical differences in some of the quotes. And what causes problems is a lot of times when the writers are quoting, and I think this comes out of Zook, I think, he gives a whole list of different words that they sometimes use in quoting, and I'll just read some of them. Jesus, for example, says, it is written, and then he will state what is written and quotes. And like I said... Jesus sometimes exercised great freedom in doing that. Another little phrase is, haven't you read this scripture? And then Jesus will quote the scripture. Or, have you not read in the book of Moses, more specifically? Another way that it's introduced, you have heard that it was said. These first few are usually the Lord Jesus Christ quoting. Or, another place, uh, Matthew says this in Matthew 2, this is what the prophet has written. And then he quotes what the prophet wrote. And sometimes in those quotes, what I'm saying is they exercise this great freedom. Let's see. And so was fulfilled such and such. And then the quote or the allusion. Jeremiah was fulfilled. And then the quote. This is was to fulfill what was spoken. Kind of the same language. It is said. And then a quotation. Uh, The book of Hebrews likes to avoid quoting specific human authors. All of his quotes are phrased, the Holy Spirit said, or God said, and then he lays out the quote. So this is some of the ways that the New Testament introduces some of these quotes. And when you compare the quote with what is quoted, sometimes you have this great, great freedom And like I said, in some cases, the grammar, sometimes a pronoun is used for the noun. Sometimes nouns are used for pronouns. 
Sometimes a plural is used for a singular. So you have all this great variation in, in grammar. A speaker identified in the quote sometimes. And one, there's at least one quotation where a speaker is identified, yet part of the quote seems to come from a different speaker. So you have all these issues. Verbal forms are altered. So great exercise of freedom. Fifthly, how much or what did the Old Testament writers know? And I would say in many cases, and we talked about a little bit of this when we talked about uh, prophetic literature, in many cases I think the prophets didn't fully understand all that God was revealing to them and all that they recorded. The example that I gave you was that uh, periscoping principle where in the case of Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, sees Messiah as the incarnated Messiah, but then he also sees the conquering king Messiah. And he puts them in the same sentence, and Isaiah does not seem to see a 2,000-year gap between the semicolon and the rest of the sentence there. Uh, but un- under inspiration, this is what the Holy Spirit led him to reveal, and he understood probably as much as he could, but now with progress of revelation, God revealing more to New Testament writers, because much of what was written is fulfilled in the coming of Messiah in his first coming, in the Incarnation, now we have more more revelation. So the Old Testament writers may not have known all that the New Testament writers know, and in their quotes sometimes this is reflected. So we have all of these issues. The issue of undue freedom, no, we would say. Secondly, inspiration is not affected. Sometimes there's a meaning that is not in the Old Testament that is brought more to the forefront that expands the meaning of the Old Testament. Thirdly, they do exercise great freedom in quoting. Oftentimes, not word for word, the way we think. When we think of a quote, we think, well, beginning quote, we've got to go word for word here, end of quote. They don't do that. Seldom. And then fifthly, what did the Old Testament writers know? And the answer that I would give is they didn't have the complete picture that we have in Christ. And even our picture, we still, Paul says, we still look through, how does he say it, uh, glass dimly. Okay, so those are the main issues with New Testament use of the Old Testament. I've kind of alluded to the extent of the quotes. There's a wide spectrum of the way these quotes are presented to us. Uh, Most scholars agree that in terms of formal, actual quotes, there are about 300 actual quotes in the New Testament. More precisely, they put the number between 250 to 300 within that range. And most scholars agree on that. And again, like I said, the, the, the numbers vary depending on clarity of the quotations. We have the highest concentrations of these formal quotes in the Gospel of Matthew, the Book of Acts, Romans, and Hebrews. Matthew, you would expect, because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, trying to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah, 
So you would expect in Matthew that he would be heavily dependent on the Old Testament and would introduce to us formal quotes. Uh, question in uh, uh, formal quotes, things like what we would expect today. Closer. Closer, but not necessarily. It would still have a lot of the variation that I talked about. But at the same time, you also said a few minutes ago, Hebrews also has more uncharacteristic quotes. So they got both formal and the... Yeah. Illusions, yeah. I'll give you another category here. The other category. Yeah, when we say more formal, the essence of what the Old Testament passage is is quoted, but like I said, a pronoun may be substituted for a noun, and grammar may be different, singular, as opposed to vice versa. But much closer in terms of, okay, I can see that this is where he's quoting. And you can identify. In other words, he's quoting from Isaiah such and such passage. Those are formal quotes. Book of Acts where we have a transition from Jewish believers to Gentile believers, you have a lot of quotes because you still have a lot of Jewish audience in the book of Acts. Converts are primarily Jewish. Book of Romans, lots of quotes because he's dealing theologically. Theology does is not entirely new. In other words, there's not a lot of new theology in the New Testament. A lot of the theology is Old Testament theology Although it's tied to the Messiah now, but it's still Jewish theology. So also eschatology, I teach a course in eschatology, I also teach the book of Revelation. One of the main points I make there, eschatology is predominantly Jewish in general. Book of Revelation is predominantly Jewish The bulk of the book deals with Daniel's 70th week. All chronology is Jewish chronology. Eschatology pertaining to the church only relates to the church in relationship to Jewish eschatology. And the church does not have a chronology. In other words, we cannot, we don't have a timeline. There is a timeline in Jewish eschatology. Daniel predicted 70 weeks of years of Israel's history. That's a timeline. 69 of them were completed with the coming of their Messiah. Messiah was cut off. And Daniel implies that there's a an interval of time between the 69th week and the 70th week. When the 70th week begins, we have very clear prophecy, particularly Daniel. We have also the book of Revelation that lays out very clearly that seven-year period of time. And that seven-year period of time precedes, I think, exactly the coming of the Jewish Messiah. That's Jewish eschatology. Make sense? So when we have these quotes, we're talking about Jewish things predominant, Jewish theology, even the book of Romans. Didn't mean to go off on this eschatological tangent, but that, I mean, it's related because these quotes sometimes relate to these prophecies being fulfilled. Make sense? And the book of Hebrews is written to a Jewish community of whom some of them are, are departing from the faith of the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ because of persecution. 
So you have a lot of quotes because he's addressing a Jewish problem. So you expect a lot of quotes. So you have the highest concentration of quotes, Matthew, Acts, Romans, and Hebrews. Now another writer says that 23 of the 27 New Testament books cite the Old Testament in one way or another. And all except Philemon, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, quote the Old Testament in terms of formal quotes. And this is with or without an introduction. And I gave you what some of those introductions look like. So those are your formal quotes. In terms of informal allusions, we might call them, rather than quotes, there's over 4,000, or about 4,000. These are sometimes a phrase, or sometimes just a, a mention of even a some reference. These are allusions. And the spectrum is wide in terms of what would be put in this category, but the maximum is about 4,000, somewhere in that range. And in this case, every New Testament book has at least an allusion, if not many allusions, to the Old Testament. And when we mean uh, informal allusions, sometimes just a few words, sometimes phrases, sometimes even, not even words, but just motifs. Motifs or themes, you might say, or stylistic usages. All in all... 10% of the New Testament comes somewhat directly, if you will, out of the Old Testament, either in the form of a formal quote or an allusion. This is a number by a scholar by the name of Nicole. And from that, 30 Old Testament books are cited in the New Testament. So this is not a trivial area of study, an area that is worthy of more study. So in the New Testament, 30 Old Testament books cited. What are the nature of the sources of these quotes? In other words, what what do they look like? There are different kinds of quotes, what we might classify as different kinds of quotes. Sometimes just a single passage or a portion of a single passage is quoted. Sometimes there's multiple passages that are put together and quoted. That's less common. Or a chain of passages. Remember in Romans 3, after he describes man's depravity, there's a whole string of quotes that Paul puts together, kind of the biblical basis for the depravity of man. And he quotes from a variety of places. He quotes from the Pentateuch. He quotes from Psalms. So that would be a passage where you have a a multitude of passages that are strung together. Sometimes you have a composite source where you pull together, blend together two or more Old Testament passages, maybe a part of one and a part of another, put together. Now that's a hard thing, because from the New Testament it's hard to see that until you try to go back and, well, where does this come from? Well, it looks like part of it came from here, part of it came from here. That's why we have kind of difficulty in interpreting some of these quotes. So you have different kinds of quotes. You have uh, variations in grammar. I mentioned that earlier. Nouns for pronouns, pronouns for nouns, etc. When, when the quotation is given in the New Testament. Sometimes you have omissions of portions of verses. 
I illustrated this from that Isaiah, what was it, Isaiah 61, was it? Remember Jesus quotes it when he introduces his, his ministry? Remember the Luke chapter 4 passage? We, we looked that one up when we were talking about prophetic material. Where Jesus quotes and he stops in the middle of a sentence. Remember that one? That was the Isaiah 61 passage. Kind of a glaring omission. He omits the last part because that did not pertain to his first coming. So we have those kinds of things. Now, we solved that problem, I think, when we were talking about the prophetic material. And some of them are more difficult, and some of them introduce problems similar to that one. So there's omissions. And similarly, partial quotes, where only portions are quoted. So that's how some of these quotes look like the nature of the sources of the quotes. If you can find the purpose of the quote, in other words, if you can discern how the author, why is he using this quote? It'll go a long way in helping you to interpret and to understand what the author is doing. Let me give you some examples of how different quotes are used in terms of their purpose. Sometimes a quote will be used in the very simple prediction fulfillment way. In other words, predicted in the Old Testament and now it's fulfilled. This is real common in Matthew's Gospel. But even some of them where it talks about fulfillment, they're, they're difficult. They don't fall into this simple prediction fulfillment relationship. You know, in some cases you'll have a quotation from the Old Testament that probably the clearest one here is that one in Matthew, what is it, Matthew chapter 2, where, where Herod asks the Magi, you know, where, where is Messiah going to appear? And they quote Bethlehem, quote the Micah passage. That's somewhat of a clear prediction, fulfillment. There's not a whole lot of interpretive problems there. That's pretty simple, pretty clear. So sometimes the author is just simply quoting as a fulfillment in the sense that we would think of. Now, sometimes the word fulfillment is used, but it's not in this simple way. Sometimes a quotation will be quoted for the purpose of giving authority to what the New Testament writer is saying, to give authority to his argument. The apostles sometimes do this. It's not, strictly speaking, a fulfillment. In other words, they're not quoting as a fulfillment, but it's more, okay, I'm speaking because of the authority of this passage. And they'll give the passage. There might be typological elements there. We talked about typology. This is probably the most difficult area. Again, on top of just the difficulty of typology itself. Sometimes a passage is quoted as confirmation of something that is being discussed or taught. To confirm a New Testament incident even is in agreement with an Old Testament principle. Another possible way and purpose is instead of a, like a fulfillment, it's more of an application of an Old Testament truth. It's applying that Old Testament principle. They'll quote the principle and use that as an application for a New Testament truth. Paul may be doing that in Romans 9, 15 through 16, where he's quoting out of the book of Exodus, probably applying an Old Testament principle there. 
I don't have it on the slide there. Well, I got other, so it may be to draw a parallel with an Old Testament incident. By the way, if you want an example of this typological, this might be a solution to that Matthew 2.14 passage where Jesus coming out of Egypt, fulfilling Hosea 11.1. You go to Hosea and it's not messianic even. It didn't pertain to Messiah. And yet Jesus somehow is fulfilling Hosea 11.1. You look at the passage, it pertains to Israel. So it might be used in a typological sense that in a similar way as Israel came out of Egypt, so also Messiah had an occasion to come out of Egypt, typologically. Make sense? That may be the solution to that problem. Because he quotes it, but it's not real clear. You look at it from the New Testament, and you go, you expect that somehow it has to pertain to Messiah because it's fulfilling Hosea 11.1, 1, and you look at Hosea 1 and it just doesn't make any sense in terms of that kind of a simple prediction and fulfillment. So you might have an idea like just like Israel had to go into Egypt and come out of Egypt, so also Jesus had to go to Egypt and come out of Egypt. And Matthew sees that in some typological sense related to the nation of Israel. So, a lot of areas of difficulty there. hope that gave you kind of a brief exposure to some of those issues. In the time that we have remaining, we have a little bit of time to look at legal material. I'm not going to be able to get through all of it, but we'll get as far as we can. And again, these are lower in the priority of types of literature because they're less frequent for one. Parables far less frequent than narrative. So also legal material far less frequent. In fact, in terms of where they're located, we have particular collections of legal material in specific areas or specific locations, if you will. There's four major areas. We have the Exodus passage, Exodus 20 through 23, Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, but we have somewhat the law or the Mosaic Covenant, or at least the heart of it. So we have a covenant, if you will, of legal material, Exodus 20 through 23. Secondly, we have a re-giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. What is namas in Greek? Namas, law, and deuteros, or relates to two or second, second giving of the law. This is 40 years later. Moses received the law on, at Sinai, actually the children of Israel through Moses at Sinai. They had 40 years of wilderness before they entered the land. Then the book of Deuteronomy is written and God gives the second generation a re-giving or a second revealing of the law. That's Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 12 through 26, where this is almost exclusively legal material. We also have holiness, a holiness code, if you will, Leviticus 17 through 26. We have priestly material where there's a variety of passages in different places. Exodus 25 through 31. Parts of Leviticus, other parts of Exodus, parts of Numbers. Those are the main areas 
where you have legal material. Well, what's the nature of law? What are the, first of all, law has a, a national aspect to it. And when you speak of the law, think in terms of this is Israel's constitution. And a constitution is to regulate all that a nation is. It deals with civil, civil aspects. It deals with social areas. It deals with individual areas. So there's a national component where the law, and by the way, the covenant is national. The Mosaic covenant, which is the law, is their constitution. Uh, the law has civil aspects which touch on the social. Government, all the issues of government, criminal law, family law, private property, all, all those issues. Citizens, interacting the citizens, all the issues of society. Much like uh, the law codes that we would have in our culture. There's all those civil aspects to it. Israel is unique in that they have aspects that are ceremonial. These are all national. These are all under the national aspect. These are subsets of the national. This deals with the religious, the whole religious aspect. So the law deals not just with society, but it deals with every aspect of life, including the religious. That's the ceremonial. Where you have the sacrificial system, you have all of the feasts and ceremonies, and thirdly, there's a, a moral aspect, which is also national, but this moral aspect is the broadest. It goes beyond the national, or deals with the spiritual. Ten Commandments would be under that category. Spiritual and eternal. In other words, they transcend the legal aspects of the Mosaic Law. That's why nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Still wrong to steal. Still wrong to murder. In other words, from Abel, Cain was a murderer. He murdered his brother. This is before the Mosaic Law. That was wrong. And he was judged for it. So the moral aspects are eternal. So that's an aspect of the national. There's also a personal aspect to the law. You read the book of Deuteronomy, one of the key words in interpreting the book of Deuteronomy is the word heart. It occurs very frequently in the book of Deuteronomy. The law is designed to address the issues of the heart. It's not just the nation's constitution, but it includes heart attitudes. This is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, is Israel had made the law to be this external standard like all of the other nations. And Jesus says, no, murder goes all the way to the source. That's why anger, when it's expressed, is, that's the source of the outworking of anger. The end product is murder. So what Jesus is reinterpreting, or kind of renewing the interpretation of that commandment, it goes all the way to the heart. So also with adultery. It's not just the external act. Now, one of the unique things of the Mosaic Law is who can regulate the heart? Can you bring a heart attitude before a judge and have a jury be able to 
Now we're trying to do that with hate crimes, which we can't do. So what is implied in the law is there's this personal aspect. There's this father-son relationship with Yahweh. And it's God that judges the heart. And it's God that sees the heart. So, there's this element of the law. It's not just this external, thou shalt not do these things that we can bring in court and try you for, but it goes all the way to the heart. That's a unique aspect. You don't find this in the Code of Hammurabi or any of the ancient law codes. So this heart attitude is inherent in the law, and we see that brought out by the Lord Jesus Christ. It has these covenantal aspects. Number three, that's the nature of the law as well, where it's legally binding. Now, this comes into play because of there's a difference in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Maybe I'll get into here how we how we relate to the law in the New Testament. Because we're not under the law, right? That's what Jesus says. Does that mean we can steal? Well, no. But what it does mean is we do not have a covenantal, legally binding contract that we're under. We're not under Israel's constitution. We're under a new system of grace. See the difference? So there's a covenantal aspect. There's this spiritual aspect. That's that moral aspect that I talked about. Where the emphasis is God's character. What is God like? And the law is attempting to reveal what God is like. His character, his holiness particularly. Well, there's casuistic law. That's like case law. Several of the passages, they, they carry a certain form. This is part of genre. If you do this, then here's the penalty. Then this is the penalty type law. That's casuistic or case law. There's apodictic. These are more absolutes. The Ten Commandments. Thou shall not. Absolute orders. Laws dealing with particular crimes. There's a lot of legal instruction as well, besides laws. comes in all these forms. Jesus fulfilled the law, right? That's why we are not under the Mosaic law. In terms of the civil law, he obeyed it absolutely, without sin. In terms of the ceremonial law, we are no longer under that aspect because Jesus fulfilled it when he died. He was the ultimate sacrifice. This is why we don't offer sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. But there's also a moral law that we are still under. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus fills up with meaning the law, and I think in that sense, fulfills the law. Do not think, in Matthew 5.17, do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill and he's going to expound how what he means by fulfilling in the rest of the passage. By bringing back that heart attitude concerning the law. And because Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial and the civil aspects, we are not under the law. And that's what Romans 7, 6 means when it says, but now we have been released from the law. That Those aspects of the law. Not the moral aspects. Civil and ceremonial. 
So we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. In other words, not in a legalistic way to the, the Mosaic Code. Or Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to a legalistic adherence to the law. And there's other passages like that. And that's probably a good place to... That's pretty much all we have on legal material. And that's all the time we have. This is the first slide that I showed when we started the course. I said this is the most important course you can take. Any disagreement? No. <laughs> okay. Hope it accomplishes this course. Or... Yeah, well, <laughs> that means you need to take it. <laughs> Mark, why don't you close for us? Father, we thank you for what you provided for us with this information for the Lord. Thank you for grace, time, for his knowledge, and this being by the Spirit to provide what we need better stewards, better servants, better priests and ambassadors to be able to do all our knowing these things that you provided for the Lord. We thank you for your real. Amen. You're welcome.